0: We could open our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 2. John's Gospel, chapter 2. Last week we looked at um, the miracle, Jesus' first miracle, and I don't think it was any coincidence that he did that at a wedding. And we looked last week at just the importance of marriage and certainly the. The institution of marriage, and especially today as it is uh, under such attack. But God created a, a marriage between a one woman and one man. That's what the Bible says. I don't know about you, but for me, that settles the issue. It doesn't really matter to me what anybody else on the planet thinks. No matter how smart they are, it's settled in my heart. And I think it can be with yours too, because I think the authority of God's word and who God is kind of trumps everything else. Just a little, right? And so we looked at that, and we also looked at the really the difference between the Old and the New Testament. We saw that in the water pots filled with water, and how Jesus made that, those empty pots. He had them fill it up with water, and it became wine. And it really is just a picture, really, of the emptiness of, of the Old Testament or what it had become. The law is actually good. The Bible tells us that it's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But once we've come to Christ, there's no need to return to the old. It doesn't mean that it's eradicated and that it it, it doesn't have any place in our lives because we know that we can't continue to murder, we can't continue to steal, and that's what the law tells us. But when Jesus comes into our life, there's a newness. The Spirit of God takes residence in our heart, and by that we know that we are a Christian. In fact, that's the only way that we are a Christian is by the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And that joy that comes as a result of the indwelling Spirit of God. Are you indwelt with the Spirit of God this morning? I pray that every one of you are, because there's no greater time to live than the time we're living in right now. Because we're getting very, very close to the end, folks. And things are wrapping up just as Jesus said they were going to. He's never lied to us. Has he ever lied to you? I mean, honestly, has he ever lied to you? He may may never be on time concerning your concept of time you may pray for something and say Lord you didn't answer that prayer in the time frame that I specified and I think the Holy Spirit will come back and say well who made you God (laughs) right we need to trust in his strength and his power and his timetable amen But that's what last week was about. But now Jesus, the very next thing chronologically that happens is he goes into the temple at the very beginning of his ministry. And he cleanses the temple. And for good reason. We're going to look at that. But let's read it. Beginning in verse 13. I'll read it to you. Open your Bibles and read it with me. Or or just hear it as I read it to you. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who had sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what is in man. He knew what was in man, and I love the fact that he knows what's inside of us. Jesus, in this next uh, section of scripture, he goes and he cleans the temple. And this is the first time that he does it, at the very beginning of his ministry. We know that he also did it at the end of his ministry, when he does it here, it's going to be some three years before he does it again. And isn't it just like human nature that the Lord comes and he does something, and then uh, just give it a little time, and we kind of slowly drift back into our old patterns and our old ways of doing things. And that's unfortunately human nature. That's what happens. And that's what happened to the Jews at this time. They were, they were used to doing things in a certain way, having their rituals and 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 those many of those things were, were um designed for them in the law of God, in the word of God. But it became something at one point at Jesus' time here, it became something they were just going through the motions. The internal observation, the internal meaning of it all had kinda gone and it became just a, a religion of externals. And that's always a problem with anyone. To forget the internal. We, we, can, we can handle the external. We can put the makeup on, we can dress up, we can do all those things. Little does anybody know that inside we're scared to death, we're frustrated, we're angry, perhaps even living in sin, but the outward looks good. God never cares about the outward appearance. He's always looking at the inward. And so it took three years and Jesus would need to go back and, and cleanse that temple again. And um, in fact, turn with me to Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 11, because we're going to look at this, this second time that Jesus goes into the temple. Remember, we just read that he did it the first time. Now fast forward three years. And it says in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 11, And remember, this was immediately after that triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, when he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. Immediately after that, Jesus, in Mark 11, chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. Again, this is the second time toward the very last part of his ministry before he'd be crucified. And so when he had looked around at all things, remember, three years ago, he he cleansed the temple, now he visits it again. He looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it, had, it was not the season for figs. And in response, Jesus said to it, "'Let no one eat fruit from you ever again.'" And his disciples heard it. Now I find this is interesting because um, considering what we're going to be discussing today and looking at, because Jerusalem had become like this fig tree. a fig tree when it bears fruit, the leaf covers the fruit so that the sun doesn't, doesn't hurt it. And so Jesus, very naturally going up to the tree, seeing it, would expect fruit, even though it wasn't right, it wasn't right at the right time for figs, but it had the outward show that something was happening. But underneath the leaf, there was no fig. And see, that, that's indicative, really, of what Jerusalem had become. It was all an outward show. It had become that. It didn't start that way. But given man and our propensity, we can do things. We've got our schedules. We can do things. We can accomplish things and check them off of our list. But God is going, that's fine that you have the list, but where am I in all of this? Where have you, did you cast me aside from your list? All the things that you're doing, am, am I just uh, baggage for you? But Jerusalem had become this, it had become. They become more concerned about the outward than the inward. But notice what happens in verse 15 of that same chapter. So they came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went into the temple. And again, the second time, he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, It is written, Is it not written, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and they sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And so here Jesus comes to the temple three years later, toward the end. And really, this was going to be the thing that was really going to clinch his crucifixion. The first time he did it, he caught them by surprise. Three years later, he comes back does the same thing, and the chief priests are going, That's, we've had it with this guy. We've got to find out a way to, to get rid of him. We've got to get rid of him. And so that is the backdrop of all of this that we're looking at this morning. So go with me back to John chapter 2, this first cleansing of the temple. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You remember, there were three feasts in the life of a Jew that they were to attend Jerusalem for. The first one was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which certainly included the Passover. The Passover occurred, and then the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was the one feast. The other one was the Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. They were... Obligated to go to Jerusalem, the Jews, for these three feasts. And finally, the Feast of Ingathering, or it's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. But what is this Passover? Many of you know very well what the Passover is. In Exodus chapter 12, it defines and shows us what the Passover was. Remember, Jesus told the Jews that to, they were to take a lamb on the 10th day of the month, and they were to hang on to that lamb, and then on the 14th day of the first month, they were to slaughter that lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the lentil, or on the um, on the side posts of the doorposts, and then on the lentil, which is that beam that goes horizontally across, and, and by putting the blood there, what did it really form? It formed a cross, didn't it? And he said, anyone who goes inside that house, when the death angel passes over, the, the country of Egypt, that anyone who was inside where the blood had been applied will be safe, but anyone who was outside and did not do apply the blood on the door of their house, the firstborn of that household would die. And we know that Pharaoh and most of the Egyptians, they were unbelieving people. That happened to them. They lost their firstborn, including Pharaoh, the heir to his throne. But Jesus said something very interesting, or the Lord says something very interesting in verse 11 of that of chapter 12 of Exodus. And he says, and then he told them that they were to eat the Passover, the, the Passover lamb. And they were to eat it with bitter herbs. They were to eat it in haste. They were to eat it with the sandals on their shoes, with the staff in their hand. And they weren't a lot, they weren't supposed to leave anything of it. But whatever was left, they were to burn it outside. And he said in verse 11, Then thus you shall eat it with belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hands. So shall you eat it in haste." Notice, it is the Lord's Passover. The Lord's Passover. That's very important. It's the Lord's Passover. But what does it tell us there in verse 13? The Passover of the Jews. I don't want to make a, a mountain out of a mole here. Whole mole Hill here, <laughs> but it was the Lord's Passover, but now at this time it had become a Passover of the Jews, because the Passover had become somewhat of a circus by this time. Many people were getting wealthy off the selling of animals at exorbitant prices for worshipers who were coming out of time, out of, out of town. You remember that even in Acts chapter 2, during the time of Pentecost, uh, you know, pilgrims from all over the world were flooding into Jerusalem. All over the place. And to bring an animal from those distances was difficult. It was. And normally, when you would come, you'd bring an animal sacrifice. You'd bring a lamb or a goat, and they would be inspected by the priest. That's what they did. They inspected them because it had to be a male of the first year without blemish without blemish. So if the animal offered, passed the test, then they would, it would be offered on behalf of the worshiper. So what was happening here, and, and the reason Jesus is having such a hard time with this, is they were offering these animals for sale that had already been inspected. And they probably weren't doing the very best job either. Because as you know, man left to himself, if it's a, a lamb without blemish, You know, there comes a point when you want to make a little more money and you look at the lamb, he's "He's got a few, but, but just, he's good, he's good. Just pass it on. And so these things were happening, these things were happening. So not only would they buy a lamb that had already been inspected, but you couldn't bring your own money. Your money from your different lands that you came from, those Jews who came from those lands, it wasn't good. You had to exchange it. There was an exchange rate for the currency for the temple money. And the temple money was different. And just as today, we get charged for exchanging of currency. They did the same thing, except they were adding exorbitant amounts on top of it. So people were getting very, very rich. And how convenient! You don't even need to bring your lamb, you just got to come with a lot of cash. You got a lot of money. We'll bring your gold card. So the worshipers come, they buy a lamb. They get robbed of their exchange rate. Their worship had become convenient. It had become something that the, Lord did, that the Lord found distasteful because people were making money off of it. And due to the covetousness, the religious leaders and those whom they allowed to sell the animals in the temple, precincts, were getting very wealthy. And this, I, I believe, is what Jesus had the problem with. They were fleecing the people. Have you ever been fleeced? Has the salesman ever told you and promised great things and and is going to sell you something for a great price and you get very little? This is kind of the attitude of the people. Attitude of the religious leaders and those who were selling. Many of the people had right hearts and they were coming to worship. But the religious leaders and those who they were allowing were doing all kinds of strange and aberrant things and the Lord was getting very fed up with it. Very fed up with it. But remember... At the very center of worship is sacrifice, isn't it? If there is no sacrifice, there is no worship. You can't call it worship unless there's a sacrifice. And there's a lot of things that pass today as worship in the church, but as nothing more than entertainment. Jesus had to cleanse the temple. It had become something that it wasn't supposed to be. And unfortunately, the church as a whole, maybe not many of you, maybe none of you, but in America and in the world, for that matter, the church, we've gotten comfortable with being entertained rather than growing in this worship, really knowing what worship is. A sacrifice to and for God who is worthy to receive all praise and glory and honor. And these are the things of worship. If you remember in Genesis chapter 21, Abraham, God had given him one son, Isaac, a promised son, and in his old age, he and Sarah, it was, it was a miracle that, that Sarah would be able to bear a child at her age, but the Lord gave them Isaac, and the Lord told him, saying, Abraham, take your son, your only son, and go up unto the mountain that I'm going to show you, and there offer your son as a sacrifice to me. Now Abraham knew very well it was a pagan idea, but he knew God's voice and he assumed and he believed that if God allowed him to go through it, that God was also able to raise him from the dead because God had made promises in Isaac. In Genesis 15 and in chapter 17, he lays out the promises of the seed after Abraham and that included Isaac. So Abraham knew something was up. He knew that he was going through something here that was way beyond him and certainly it was but do you think it was easy for him to offer his son moms and dads if you have only one child or, or or even children think of how hard that would be thank god he doesn't ask us to do that but do you think this was a sacrifice for for abraham you better believe it i bet i bet that the 3 days that they were traveling after the lord told him his heart and his Everything in his being was going. Lord, I know this is not right, but you've told me to do it. I know your voice. I've had this. I have this relationship with you, so I'm, I trust you. I believe you. And he finally he goes through with it. But a, a sacrifice. That's what it was. It was a worship service on the Mount Moriah, which is currently where the Temple Mount is today. And what about Mary of Bethany? In John chapter twelve, it tells us that she brought an alabaster flask full of spikenard. It was worth a year's wages. And so she pours this ointment over Jesus to anoint him. A very costly thing. Some of, one of the disciples, a few of them, even Judas, was getting all upset about it because they could have sold it and given the money to the poor. Sounds like a great idea. However, <laughs> Mary had a different plan. Her worship was extravagant, and the Lord received it. And he even said, it's going to be written for a memorial that this woman has done this. The poor you always have with me, but you don't have me always. What did Jesus say in John 4, verse 23? He says, The hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Spirit of God within us is what gives us... He's the one who is... um, giving us this worship, the Spirit of God in us, desiring us to worship. And we don't wish worship any way we want. No, we worship in spirit and in truth, guided and led by the Spirit, but also according to the truth of the Word of God. We don't worship God by handling snakes like they do down in the South. We don't worship the Lord by howling like animals and writhing on the floor like serpents. None of those aberrant things. You're a a masterpiece in God's eyes. Why would he have you do that? We have to worship him in spirit and truth. And that is always the order. God initiates and then we respond to what God has said, what God has done. Does that make sense? That's what worship is. It's It's a response to what he has initiated. It's always that way. He initiates, I'm going, wow, that's amazing. I worship him as a result. And that's the way it is, and I love that about the Lord. What about in Acts chapter four, when Barnabas, a Levite from the island or from the island of Cyprus, he sells all of his, he sells a parcel of land, and he brings all of it to the or to the um, to the apostles, and he lays it at their feet. You think that was a a sacrifice? It was. Maybe it was his family's plot of land, and after his mother and father passed away, perhaps. He said, I don't need this land anymore, but the money we can use for the distributing uh, for the saints in Jerusalem. And he did that as an act of worship. It was a sacrifice. He could have taken the money and bought a really nice Cadillac, but he didn't. (laughs) He gave it. And what about David? David. Toward the end of David's ministry... You recall that in First Chronicles chapter 21, David had taken a census. He was in his, getting close to his 70th birthday, somewhere in that time frame. And soon Solomon would take the throne. And David, in his twilight years, decided to take a census of all of Israel. And he didn't take a census because it was just the right thing to do. No, it was really motivated by pride. How many people are in my, under my control now? You know, I want to know this before I pass the throne to Solomon. I want to, I want to have like some kind of, you know, and pride takes over. Because God didn't mandate him to do this. He did earlier, but it was God mandated. Now it's all about pride and self. But David, he does this, and as a result, the Lord gave him a choice of three things as punishment for his sin. And he chose, he he chose to let the Lord decide, and the Lord did. But I want to read to you what it says in First Chronicles chapter 21, because this is a really remarkable concept concerning worship. It says in verse 18, Therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad, who was David's seer, that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, because God had begun to bring judgment upon the people of Israel for David's mistake. And as a result of that judgment, God tells David, Go build an altar on the threshing floor of Ornan, or Aruna is his name, the Jebusite. And so David went up. To Uh, at the word of the Lord, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him, and they hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing the wheat. So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor, and he bowed before David with his face to the ground, and then David said to Ornan, Please grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price. Notice, David wasn't looking for a handout. He wasn't, because he was the king, he could have just taken it. But you know, David's heart wasn't that way. He says, I'm going to pay full price for this thing. Why? That the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan, listen to the heart of this servant. He said, But Ornan said to David, take it to yourself and let my Lord, um, the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for, for wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. What a wonderful fellow. He's willing to give it all. I say Ornan was a a worshiper. And he was a Jebusite. He wasn't even a Jew. And he was willing to give it to the king. But I love this. Verse 24 is key to this whole thing. He says, Then King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor burnt offerings and that which costs me nothing. So David paid him a very large sum. But I think of that. Ornan was willing to sacrifice and and offer that to David, and David said, you know what, yeah, I can't do this. In order for it to be sacrificed, it's got to hurt a little bit for me. And I'm not going to just accept a free offering. No, I'm going to pay full price, Ornan, and I'm going to give you the full price. You go to your realtor and find out what that land is for, and I'm going to give you every last cent of it, because I will not offer what is free to the Lord on behalf of me. And I love that about David. I love that about him. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 12, John the Baptist prophesied concerning Jesus cleansing the temple which we read this morning. John the Baptist says, "His winnowing hand, his winnowing fan, excuse me, is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and 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 gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." And I think of of what that that site there at the on the on the temple mount which back in the time of David was just a threshing floor and here John is thinking of probably of that same moment when David bought that land that threshing floor and Jesus would return to that very same place and he would clean house he had to clean the house because it had become filthy It had become something that God was not pleased with. And of course, when we think of worship, we think of Jesus Christ on the cross. Is there any greater sacrifice than Jesus on the cross? The innocent suffering for the guilty? The perfect suffering for the imperfect, which we all are? That was the greatest sacrifice, as he hung on the cross. Of any worship service in the entire universe... That will ever occur. Jesus on that cross. Father into your hands I commend my spirit. And it is finished he said. Amen. Amen. That was the worship. That was the sacrifice. Think of that. Almighty God come in human flesh. Taking the price of the punishment. That you and I deserve. To satisfy. To propitiate for us. That. Is worship the greatest sacrifice, the Son of God. But has your worship become something of your own making? And I say that not only to us, but to those who may be watching and those who will be listening later on on the radio. It's amazing how uh, this message can hit so many people. But has our worship become something of our own making? Don't get me wrong, worshiping the Lord is a joy, isn't it? It is a joy, but sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's not easy, because a sacrifice is exactly that, a sacrifice. Do you think Jesus, I mean, the Bible says that while he hung on the cross, for the joy that was set before him, but he didn't enjoy the agony and the pain, and certainly the being separated from his father for that amount of time, when it had never happened before. That was not a walk in the park for our Lord. And you may feel good after worshiping, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that is not the goal. The goal is to please the Lord, regardless of our feelings, our emotions. It's to worship the Lord, to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why we think of a sacrifice of praise. You know, oftentimes, you know, uh, leading worship here for 23 years uh, before um, Pastor Jeff left... There were times that I would stand up there and lead worship, and, and my heart was not in the right place. My heart was somewhere else. And no, none of you knew it, and God's grace covered that. But it was a sacrifice of praise for me as well, because I just wasn't connected, but I do it nonetheless. Why? Well, number one, Pastor Jeff would have fired me, but number two, that's my, that was my role. And regardless of what I'm feeling isn't he worthy to be worshipped? He's worthy, regardless of how I feel, regardless of anything that happens in my life. It was a sacrifice of praise, and perhaps you feel the same way. You come from work. Maybe this morning you have a, a loved one that's on their deathbed. Maybe your, your, your marriage is in shambles. Maybe you're struggling with a sin, a sin issue in your own life, and you come here, and you're feeling very unworthy. But I want to tell you this morning that God is able to cover you in his grace and in his blood. And he's like, you know what? Don't you worry about how you feel. I'll take care of the feelings. You just worship me. You just worship me. And it does, it becomes a sacrifice of praise. I recall the uh, Jeremy Camp, who you know is a Christian uh, songwriter and singer. Um, Many, many years ago, his first wife was dying. And she did die, but on her deathbed, he was there at her side and something profound really happened to him and the Lord, he was just kind of feeling down in the mouth like we would all feel and the Lord spoke to his heart and he said, Jeremy, worship me. I'm losing my wife, Lord. You want me to worship you? Yeah. And he did. And it was one of the most profound moments of his life because his circumstances were dictating, man, I need to be you know, crying, I need to be, you know, sullen and down and, and here he is, worship. he puts his hands up and he begins to worship. Has our worship become convenient? Does it still have that aroma of sacrifice upon it? Is it just the singing of songs when you feel like it and maybe a financial transaction that fits neatly within your budget? Is that what worship is? Many Christians today, and I'm not pointing any of you out today, but just in in totality and in Christendom, I fear that we've lost our understanding of what worship really is. Many of our brothers and sisters all across our land today think that worship is just singing of songs. They think that if the worship team is really hot, if it's loud, everyone's clapping their hand, that that's worship. It might be but it might not be. People worship worship. I've been to a lot of rock concerts in my day, especially before I came to Christ, but the church is not to be a rock concert. If some people are not emotionally affected, if it didn't make them dance, it didn't bring a tear to their eye, they claim that, real, that that worship didn't happen. And they say to themselves, if the worship style doesn't meet my criteria, if it doesn't meet my criteria, if it doesn't excite my teen son or my teen daughter, if they're not getting up on their hands, on their feet, and, and, and clapping and dancing, then I'm going somewhere else where it does. I want the music to move me. But let me ask a question. When was worship ever about you and I? It was never about you and I. And yet, people go to churches based on the worship team. I love our, the simplicity of our worship team. I love it. The Lord didn't provide us a big team. <laughs> we, most of the time, it's just Sarah and her guitar, or me and Sarah and the guitar, whatever it is. But it's, it's a small thing. Can we still worship? Is it worth leaving the church over? Some have left this church because they didn't like the way the worship was going. Let me tell you something. You could sing on a one-string banjo, Amazing Grace, for the rest of your life, and your heart could be right in it, and God would accept it. You don't need all that flash in the pan. You don't need the lights and the smoke. Again, you know, I'm not judging anybody. I'm just saying the, the obvious. It doesn't necessarily mean it's worship. It could be. But are you going to leave a church because you don't like the worship? Because it doesn't move you? It doesn't doesn't shake you? It doesn't make you feel like you're in a rock concert? I would challenge you, if our worship is aberrant, if it doesn't honor Jesus, if the words of the songs aren't about Jesus or they don't honor Jesus, if there's more emphasis on self than there is on Jesus Christ, then guess what? We need to correct it. But if it does glorify Jesus and honor him, then why would you leave a fellowship over that? And not only that, what kind of message are you sending to your kids and all those around you? Here is the message that you're sending. The style of worship and what I get out of worship is more important than everything else. That's the message that you're sending. Is that the message you want to send? Do you think God has a problem with worship? Do you think he has a problem with our worship? I don't think he does. I think he's challenging us doesn't matter how many people are on the worship team. Is it more important than the Word of God being taught? You're going to go to a church where the, the, the worship team is hot and the kids are playing video games, but the pastor gets up and he speaks for 15 minutes on, a, on something that, uh, some kind of topical thing that feels good, uh, uh, you know, whatever, and it's over and he oh, well, let's just worship some more. You know? and again, there's nothing wrong with enjoying and singing to the Lord. Don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. But the Christian church in America, we need to grow in our understanding of what worship is and what it isn't. God would have us grow and be mature spiritually. What does it say in Hebrews? You know, the author of Hebrews kind of uh, put the fire under the worshipers, and he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, for those who are by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And that's what the Lord wants to do. He wants to grow us. He wants us to go forward, to press forward. Paul in Philippians says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but the, thing, the one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And see, that's what we need to do. We need to grow in our, our understanding of not only the word of God, but in worship. We don't entertain people here. This is not an entertainment center. We never will be. We're here to worship Jesus. We're here to love him. We're here to love his word. And we're not pointing fingers at anybody else. We just want to do what God has called us to do. And to do it well. And Lord, feel free to change anything you want. This is your building. This is your church. We all belong to him. Amen? Amen. (laughs) He has a right to go in and clean the house. He has a right to cleanse the temple as he did. But you know what? If I'm not sharing the word of God, if I'm not biblically sound, then by all means, leave. And I'll probably leave with you. (laughs) But we do teach the word of God. And our worship is not the warm-up act before we get into the Word. It's not the warm-up act. It is equally as important as what we're doing, because it's all worship. One is not more important than the other. It's all important, do you understand? But real worship is rarely convenient, and real worship will cost you something. It costs Abraham, it costs Mary of Bethany, it costs Barnabas, it costs David... And certainly it costs Jesus. And real worship costs us something as well. And it's not all about money either. It's not about money. What did Paul tell us? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's reasonable for us to do that. Based on all that he's done for us, for me to offer my life back to him, does there any mention here about money? I mean, granted, we, we, we tithe and we, we worship in that way, and that is a form of worship, don't get me wrong, but God is, most people think, well, it's just, it's just, you know, writing the check and singing some songs. No, it's a lot more than that. He'd much rather have your heart. He wants our hearts. Oh, would you give him your heart? Give him your heart. He would much rather have your heart than anything else. And the days that we live in, folks, you need to know that Jesus loves you. You need to know that you're forgiven if you, if you put your faith in him and what he did on the cross for you, the blood that was shed for you. Please hear that. And then I respond to that. I am not going to go to hell. You're not going to go to hell if you've given your heart to Christ. I don't know about you, and we're talking about an eternity here, okay? Not just the weekend, We're talking about eternity. It will never end. And guess what? Putting your faith in him makes sense. It's reasonable. It's sane. It it only makes sense. Because he loves you. He doesn't want to harm you. He doesn't want to take away your fun. Hey, believe me, before Christ, I did all the stuff that everybody else does. Got caught up in all the stuff. And I, I can tell you from experience, I don't miss any of those days. I would have much rather, if I could rewind the tape and hit play again. I would go back and I would follow Christ from the moment I gave my mother gave birth to me. As soon as I came out of the womb and I'm the umbilical cord still attached, hand me a Bible. (laughs) I want to read it. I want to know it. (laughs) Right? That's what I want. There's such a peace and a joy of walking with Jesus and knowing that you're forgiven. I mean, doesn't it just lighten the load? Didn't he say, Come, my my burden is is easy, you know, my my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I don't know about you, but this last year, twenty twenty, was a pretty laden year. I'm glad it's gone. See ya. Never want to go back again. but we're to be a living sacrifice. But notice back in verse 13, we're getting really far today. Notice in 13 there, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. No matter where you're at in, in Israel, you always go up to Jerusalem, because the elevation goes up. It's on top of a mountain range, Mount Moriah. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers. And again, this was a surprise to them. They were surprised when Jesus came in and did this. And here again is a fulfilled prophecy in Malachi. A few hundred years before Jesus would come on the scene, what did Malachi say? Behold, I send my messenger. And that was John the Baptist. And he will prepare the way before me. That was John the Baptist. And the Lord, Jesus, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And guess what? On this day, he came. And he cleaned house. (laughs) He suddenly came to his temple. And he shocked them. Because their worship had become something aberrant. It had become something unholy. They had forgotten who Jesus is. Going through the motions. But that was about it. And when he had made a whip of cords, verse 15, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, poured out the money changers, overturned the tables. Do you notice these whips weren't made to whip people? The Bible doesn't say that he whipped anybody. But let me tell you, when he did that and he started doing that, It was getting people's attention. And the animals were very much aware of what a whip does. Ooh, I've heard that sound before. I'm out of (laughs) here. And the people are going, who's this lunatic? (laughs) Yeah. And Jesus was in complete control. What's the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, but one of the things is self-control. Was Jesus in self-control here? Yes, he was. He knew exactly what he was going to do, and he knew exactly the result, and he didn't need to do anything more. He wasn't going berserk. He wasn't throwing that whip around and whipping kids and whipping people. He wasn't hurting the animals at all. He was using that as a way to get their attention, and it got their attention. He knew it would get their attention. He didn't need to do anything more. But what do you do when you get angry? If You, you and I are different, right? We, we, we should be, you know, if we're governed by the Spirit of God, we ought to say, Lord, help me with my anger with my temper, because when we get angry, we put our fist in the wall. When we get angry, we throw something off the table into the wall. When we're angry, we yell at people as we pass them on 490. When they cut us off, when they fail to put their blinker on. Our window's up, but they can see our face. (laughs) Oh, what a model of self-control we are. But guess what, folks? There's a difference. There's nothing wrong with anger for the right reasons. But what we do and how we express that anger is very important. In Psalm 4, verse 4, it says, Be angry and sin not. Meditate with your heart on your own bed and be still. Be angry and sin not. It's okay to be angry. But how does that, what happens as a result of that anger? Do I yell at people? Am I swearing at people? Am I hurting people? How am I, what am I doing as a result of that anger? That, folks, is the, is the question. Jesus was in complete control. He was in complete control. And those other scriptures that are on the screen speak of the same thing. Psalm 37, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. I would say it does. Many of you are the beneficiaries, unfortunately, of anger from somebody else. Maybe you had an abusive husband. Maybe your father's been abusive to you. Maybe your mother has been abusive to you. Jesus was in complete control. And by the Spirit of God, he wants us to be in complete control as well. But in verse 16, he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house. Notice, he's calling him God, his father. Claiming equality with God. That's a big deal because he's claiming that he is almighty God as well. He says, Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. And this is from Psalm 69. And I love this because it it encompasses so much, this verse 8 and 9. It says, I have become a stranger to my brothers. David writing this as if Jesus was writing it, because Jesus certainly was a stranger to his brothers and an alien to my mother's children. They didn't believe in him until after his resurrection. But up until then, they were very skeptical of him. They they looked at him with crossed eyes. But he says, because zeal for your house has eaten me up. It just, the zeal for for the father's house, where it should have been a house of prayer, it should have been a house of worship, but now it had become a den of thieves. It had become a house of merchandise. It had become Walmart of the Middle East. If you remember, Manasseh was one of the worst kings of Judah. One of the worst kings of Judah. He reigned for fifty-five years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He built high places that his his uh, that Hezekiah, his son, had torn down. He raised up altars to for Baal, which was a false prophet or a false uh, deity. He made a wooden image to Asherah, a female deity, a female goddess. He worshipped all the hosts of heaven, built altars for them. He made his son pass through the fire as an act of worship. He sacrificed his son to Molech in the fires of Molech as he would hold him. That's what he did. Well, what a worship service that must have been. He consulted spiritists and mediums and practiced soothsaying and witchcraft. But his grandson his grandson Josiah we know Josiah what a wonderful man he was a reformer king he comes on the scene and he undoes everything that his wicked father had done he undoes it all he took away the shrines of the high places he took away the altars he burned the images He cleaned the house. And in fact, while they were cleaning the house, they found a copy of the law. Probably had dust on it, probably had Led Zeppelin records stacked over the top of it. Finally, the the book of the law is found and Josiah reads that and he is so convicted. He, He tears his clothes and as a result of What he saw, God had forewarned and told them and how far they had gone. He said, you know what? Enough is enough. He cleansed the temple. Josiah did. He had all the priests, everyone active. We're going to do this together and we're going to clean this house. And he did. He cleansed the house of the Lord and he took away all the idols, all the high places, all the stuff. And let me ask you, is there stuff in your life that needs to go. Is there a cleaning of house that needs to happen in your home and in your heart? Because see, if we don't come away with that, we will miss the entire point of, of this whole message this morning. Jesus cleansed the temple because it needed to be cleansed. Over time corruption began to creep in and creep in and creep in. He did it the first time, three years later, it's all back again. It's even better, more improved, shinier, better, bigger. And he's gotta go in and do it again. Maybe some of us this morning need to take inventory of our own hearts, our own families, and look at the movies that we watch. Take a look at the music that we're listening to. Taking a look internally and say, Lord, what is my attitude about worship? What is my attitude? Where has it gone? How far have I strayed from that? It's a good thing to ask. It's a good thing to ask. Why? Because the Lord loves you. He's got a great plan for you. You may not know it now. Maybe you do. Maybe you have an inkling of what God wants to do. He's got a great plan for your life, and there's no greater life than a life that is surrendered to Jesus Christ. I have never been so blessed and so even ha- even happy. Okay, happiness kind of comes and goes, doesn't it? But I've, I'm even happy and I'm blessed because of who. He's made me, and what he's doing, he's making me. He's still doing it. He's still doing it with you too. We're all the same. He's making us. He's he's building a church. It's a beautiful thing if we'd accept it. If we would read his word, take him for his word, and say, Lord, search me. Take that wonderful million-power candlelight flashlight, and I'll open my my mouth wide, and Lord, you shine down, and you look down in every little dark area of my heart. Anything that's dark, God, you clean it out. And help me to do the same. Help me to take initiative. The Spirit of God is there to encourage you to do those things. I don't know about you, but show of hands, how many of you believe that we live in a perverse and corrupt culture? Okay. Yeah, we do. We need the Lord. We need Jesus. And you know how the world is going to see him? He's going to see him through you. What are we doing? How is our worship? What are we doing? Is my life, do I got a smile on my heart? Am I going to pull myself out of the doldrums of 2020? Is that going to define my whole Christian experience from here going forward? Oh, COVID. Here's my worship. No. Far from it. Worship Jesus. Get to know him. Let him love you. Be blessed. So verse 18, the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us? They're always looking for a sign. Show us a sign. We want to be entertained, Jesus. Remember Herod? Herod wanted to see him because he wanted to see a miracle done by him. He wanted to be entertained. He's sitting there in his little palace where he's got his little, you know, uh, ice tea with a little umbrella and he's got, you know, female servants fanning him. You know, I would like to see Jesus. Jesus, could you come and do a a magic trick for me? We've got a, a deck of cards here. Let me pull a card out. Herod wanted to be entertained. They said, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. See, they would ultimately kill Jesus, but he would rise on the third day. That's what he was speaking of here. And Herod's temple, yes, it took a while to build. Herod the Great was a great architect, and he took Zerubbabel's temple, which was the temple that the children of Israel began to rebuild after they came back from their 70-year captivity from Babylon. Remember, and they called it Zerubbabel's temple. It wasn't as glorious as Solomon's temple. And so they lived with that temple for a few hundred years until finally Herod the Great says, You know what, I'm going to do a favor for the Jews. And I'm going to build them. I'm going to expand this Temple Mount complex. And I'm going to build great buildings. And he did. And, and they loved him for it. It became, again, the seventh wonder of the world. But it took. You know, he started in the venture in 20 B.C. And it took to about 26 or 27 A.D. to finish the project. And even then, it wasn't completely done until around 63 A.D., seven years before it would ultimately be destroyed by the Romans. But God is very concerned about us. If he's concerned about the earthly temple, how concerned is he about us? What does it say in 1 Corinthians 3? Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy which temple you are. And if that is the truth, then I've got... Some house cleaning to do. I got some things to pray about, some things to consider, right? If I'm the temple of the living God, what am I doing to that temple? I've got my opportunities, and I know you do too. I could be eating a lot better, I could be exercising this temple, which I need to do, by the way. I need to lose about 30 pounds of that temple. But what does it say in Colossians? I love what it says in Colossians chapter 3. Paul says to them, If then you were raised with Christ, then seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden in Christ. And this verse here, for those of you who are getting baptized this morning, this is really important because this is exactly what we're doing as you have confessed Christ in your own life and you're born again, he says, as a result of that, as a result of his crucifixion, you died in Christ, and as a result, and when he rose again on the third day, so you too also rise to newness of life. Notice what he says in verse 3. For you died, and your life is hidden in Christ, in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, as a result of that, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, by the way. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourself also walked and once lived in them. But now you yourselves are also to put off these. Notice, it's like taking off a garment. Put off these things. Put off these things. Put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. I used to have a filthy language or filthy mouth before I came to Christ, and that was one of the first things he took. There were other things that lingered. I wish he would have taken everything, but I'm not a perfect, and I know you're not either. But he took my filthy, rotten mouth out of me immediately. It's like I had the Holy Spirit at my mouth, and everything that came out, I was like, wow. I was aware of every word I spoke. And I love that. I'm very thankful for that, because He's changed me, and He's changing me as He's doing that for you too. But put off these things, and do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man and his deeds, and have put on what you put on. You put off something to put on something. You put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Whether there is Jew or Greek or Scythian, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, doesn't matter. Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. Notice, put it on. How do I do that? How can I put it on? Well, very simply, you, you get into the word of God and you pray every, every morning and be in communication with God all throughout the day. And say, Lord, what I'm reading here in my lap is not for somebody else. I can share it with somebody else, but it's first for me. Be first partaker of the word of God. Let it take a hold of you. Even if it's only one verse, take a verse and digest it. Think about it. Pray about it. And say, Lord, I want this to become true in my life today. In every possible way. And you know what? You do that. And you're going to be walking with him in your life will be blessed. You will be blessed. Don't do what all your friends are doing. They're just following the, their own feelings. Oh, I feel like doing this. I feel like doing that. I'm going to go smoke. I'm going to drink. I'm going to hang out. And I'm going to sleep with this person, whatever. You know. They, they do all this stuff. Is that, is that really freedom? Sounds like slavery to me. Because that's what the devil wants to do, is enslave. But you put on Christ. You put on Christ. Put him on. The new man. And rejoice forevermore. Rejoice. In verse 22 of our text this morning, it says, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, notice his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Remember that the Jesus' disciples were growing just like you and I. You remember, I mean, Jesus spending time with Peter for three and a half years. He was with him every single day. And yet what happened at the very end of Jesus' life? Peter, he denied him three times. The other disciples took off. They were growing in their understanding. They were fearful. They, they didn't have it all together. I, I, I like that because I feel that way too. Anybody follow? I don't feel like I have it all together all the time. And when I read passages like this, I think we're in pretty good company. Because the disciples were there too. They didn't remember. Until after his resurrection, then they remembered. Then they remembered. And much of the time they remembered things after. We're not going to go into these scriptures too much here, but Jesus, um, you know, the disciples remembered certain things after, after the fact. And um, we'll just look at one of these. In John 12, after the triumphal entry of Jesus on what we call Palm Sunday, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, meaning when he was resurrected, then they remembered that these things were written about him. So their understanding, just like us, was growing. And I love that. I like to grow. Do you like to grow? I really do. I enjoy learning and I enjoy growing because I don't want to be the same. You know, you want your life to be exciting? Give your heart completely to Christ and follow him. You'll never have a boring day. You never be bored. Because he's doing something new in your heart every single day. And he does it. And I love it. Do you want that? I don't know, do you? Yeah, I want that. Verse 23 in our text says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw When they saw the signs which he did. Seeing is not necessarily believing. Some people have seen a lot and yet it didn't change their heart. There were many people who saw what happened on the cross and they were unaffected by it. So seeing is not believing. But I believe that believing is seeing. It's the other way around. You believe and then you'll see. But if you're waiting for a sign and then you'll believe, chances are you're not going to believe either. You need to give your heart to Christ. I love what he says in Matthew. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. He also said to them, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. That's all of us, by the way. Because they saw him physically, and they struggled in their belief. I'm kind of glad that I didn't see Jesus in the flesh. Because I probably would have tried to size him up as a man. And it would have stumbled me. But I don't think of him that way. Because the only description the Bible gives me is his glorified state. In the book of Revelation and in a couple places in Isaiah. Or in Ezekiel. I, I get an idea of his glorified state. And that's what, where my worship begins. Right, Because I'm not seeing a man. I'm not looking for a man. I'm looking for the holy God of all creation, Jesus. Love that about him. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's all of us. But Jesus, verse 24, did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He knew all men. He knows all things. We can't hoodwink him. Because he's omniscient, he's all knowing, he knows what's going to happen. I would encourage you to read Psalm 139. It's my favorite psalm. It speaks of God's omnipresence, that he's everywhere. He's not only everywhere all at once, but he's also all knowing. He can't learn anything. Read Psalm 139, it'll blow, your, blow you away. The fact that he knows what I'm going to speak tomorrow, that may scare some of you. But he knows what you're going to speak tomorrow. At 12.01 in the afternoon, he's like, you're going to say this word. I'm be like, really? I know it because I've already seen it. That's who we're dealing with. He's not a man-made God. He's the God of creation. Amen? Yes. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. In man, left in and of himself, there's no good thing. What does it tell us in... um, uh. In Romans, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jeremiah tells us something even more encouraging, and that's this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And God answers that question. He says, I, the Lord, know the heart of man. I'm the one who tries the reins to give everyone according to his deeds. He knows The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. But they've all turned aside, they have all together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, no not one. Sorry if that hurts your self-esteem, but that's the truth. Jesus knew what was in man, nothing. But a man and a woman is someone he can fill. Are you filled with the Spirit of God this morning? Do you have the Spirit of God indwelling you? Do you know that God wants to even do a greater work by coming upon you and empowering you to be a witness for Him in these last days? To be vocal? He does. He wants to use your life, and He wants to cleanse. Will you take that seriously today? I'm going to take it seriously. Examine your life, my brothers and sisters, today all this week, and really think about this passage, about Jesus cleansing the temple. It needed to be cleansed, and my heart needs to be cleansed. And I would imagine, because we are the same, that your heart as well needs to be cleansed. And why? Because he loves you. That's, that's as simple as it is. That's why he wants you to be cleansed, because he has a better plan. And a cleansed life is a blessed life. I know this because I'm going through it right now. We're being transformed to the image of Christ, right? We're being sanctified daily, set apart daily. I'm choosing to take those things in my life and just go, I'm done with that, done with that. I hated that to begin with. I'm easily get rid of that. Oh, I like this, though. I'm going to hang on to it like a teddy bear. I like this thing. And the Lord's going, okay, Rob. You know it's bad, you know it's it's sinful, but Lord, I like it. He's like, it's going to destroy you. "Mm, I don't think so, Lord. I can do it better than anybody else. I can get away with it. And he's like, oh, really? Okay, see in a couple years after you've corrupted yourself with that thing. And then two years goes by and I come back and I'm in the gutter. Didn't I tell you about that one? Oh, yeah, you did, Lord. (laughs) Okay, I'm done with it. And then you take it and you throw it away. And he's like, Great. Sorry you had to go through the school of hard knocks for that one. But let the Lord clean house today. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this passage. We thank you, Lord, that you you care for the physical things. Lord, when we think of the, the center of worship there in Jerusalem at the temple, Lord. You cared for that because it was something that was directly affecting people's worship of you, Lord, and And Lord, your desire was to minister to people and to have them have a right relationship with you. Lord, this morning we want the same thing. We would ask you to search us, Jesus. Search us, Holy Spirit. If there's any unclean thing, like David said, I believe it was in Psalm 51. Lord, cleanse me, Lord. Create in me a clean heart. See if there's any wicked way in me and then lead me in the way of everlasting. Lord, may that be true of each of us this morning. Lord, how we love you and how we thank you for the encouragement that you bring us, even though sometimes it can be hard. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.